0: So I'm I'm gonna take you back to the 60s real quick, 1960s, to a pastor's home, to what what it was like to be Pastor Chuck's youngest daughter in the 1960s. So let me tell you this, Saturday nights were my favorite night, not my favorite day, but my favorite night of the week. I played hard all week long. I remember my mom, sometimes I would come in and she'd say, you smell like a puppy dog. And that was my nature because I played so hard. Saturday was the day that my mother cleaned the house. And so she tried to get rid of all of us. So either my father would take us to the beach or you know we had to play outside. No one was allowed in the house on Saturday till mother was finished. On Saturday, she changed all the bedding All the bedding got changed. Brand clean sheets. You would come in and the house smelled so fresh till I brought my puppy dog scent in. I I might be on a long bike ride with friends. One of our favorite things to do was to take pieces of cardboard and slide down ice plant hillsides. I loved to climb trees. I loved to run. I helped the boys next door make underground forts. That was my Saturdays. Then Saturday night dinner would be at 5 o'clock. And wherever we were, my dad had this special whistle, which meant, and we could hear it no matter where we were, meant come running home for dinner. And it was like this. Let me see if I can do it. Never mind. But- My dad would do that whistle and we knew it was come home now. If we didn't respond to that, then he did this whistle that went do-do-do-do-do-do and you better get home. That was like your last chance. You better get home. Now, Saturday nights was also very exciting because it was the night that my dad made dinner. Now, my mom made dinner Monday through Friday nights. That was her responsibility. uh, Sunday afternoons, we got to go out for dinner The church actually paid for the pastor's lunch at whatever restaurant we chose. Um, And my dad was very, very careful about what restaurant he chose because you were paying for it. That was a provision in his um, contract with Calvary when they hired him because they couldn't pay him enough for four children. So they said, but we'll pay your Sunday dinner. So that was when, that was the only time during the week we got to go out to. Dinner. Okay, enough about that. Back to my dad. He made dinner Saturday nights. And it was so great because when dad made dinners, we didn't have to have vegetables. It was the only night of the week there were no vegetables. I was like, yes, it's dad's night. And there was his secret sauce. No matter what he made, it had Chuck Smith's secret sauce. And I want to tell you something about his secret sauce. Every secret sauce contained ketchup, just for the record. And it was water and ketchup, or it was hot sauce and ketchup, you know, La Victoria and ketchup, but every single sauce contained ketchup. And he, you never knew what dad was going to make, unfortunately, because it usually had to do with whatever somebody in the church had given us that week. It could be swordfish a la ketchup. It could be abalone steaks a la ketchup. It could be venison a la ketchup. So even though I liked those dinners, I was suspect. I was was suspect, especially the elk dinner, that was not happy. My dad um, always did something experimental. Now, Saturday night was my big bath night. Now I took baths, I just want you to know. Puppy dog took baths, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but this was the big one. This was the big bath because mom was not gonna allow any dirty child back in those clean sheets. This was the night I washed my hair. You see, back in the 60s, we washed our hair only once a week, once a week. And we didn't blow dry it because they hadn't quite been perfected yet. Most of them burned out. So most people, or you had the bonnet hair dryer. Remember the bonnet hair dryer that had a hose? Most of you are like, Was that the Dark Ages? Yes. We (laughs) rode our dinosaurs to the bonnet hair dryers. So there were bonnets. You wear these bonnets in the hair dryer, but I was too young for the bonnet. But I would use something called luster cream. That was my shampoo, and it was almost solid. So you would unscrew the jar, and you had to be at least seven before you could wash your own hair. And you would take a little, you know, little, take your fingers and just a little swipe of Lester's cream, wipe it and do this. And you know what? This is gonna come as a shock to so many of you, but we didn't even know there was such a thing as conditioner. We didn't even know. I mean, what you did is you just took a comb and you had to comb out your hair after your bath to get all the tangles out. And so after my bath my hair was washed, my mom would spend about 30 minutes getting every single tangle out of my hair. And then she would take the rags, because we had these rags that were made out of old sheets, and she would do my hair in rag curls every single Saturday night. Because you know what? Sunday was a coming. The next morning was Sunday. And all this was in anticipation of Sunday morning going into the house of God. And I'm gonna tell you a secret now that Tom's gone, I got to wear my roughly underwear. <laughs> only on Saturday nights for Sunday, only night. And I got to wear fresh clean pajamas because we'd have one pair of pajamas to wear during the whole week. And then Saturday night, my fresh pajamas. And I still remember the feeling of climbing into bed with fresh hair, fresh pajamas in those fresh sheets and feeling so clean, so loved, and so excited about Sunday morning and Sunday school and going to church. So excited. I'm going to tell you one other secret that my dad didn't know. Sundays on the way to church were the only, was the only time during the week that I was allowed to chew gum. Dad didn't know it. My dad was very against gum. Gum and cigarettes, mortal sins. But my mom would pass us all out a piece of gum and we could chew it in the car. And then she would pass the Kleenex around just about a block from the church so we would all spit it out before dad could see. And then she'd throw that Kleenex away. So dad didn't know that we were all in the gum-chewing habits, especially on a Sunday morning. I mean, that might've been really bad. (laughs) But there's nothing like a clean start. Nothing at all like a clean start. Because all of us, during our lives and during the week, we pick up dirt and germs and dust. Why? Because germs, dirt, and dust, and may I say even viruses, are everywhere. There is no escape. In the same way, we get spiritually grimy. We pick up various pollutants just from living in this world. We don't do it intentionally like, hey, I'd like that virus. (laughs) I'd like that germ. We don't want them. But they just happen. It's, It's life on earth. Maybe you remember the exchange between Jesus and Peter in John chapter 13. That's where Jesus, knowing that his time had come, knowing that God had put all things under his authority, he got up from dinner and he took a towel and he filled up a basin with water and he began to go from disciple to disciple, washing their feet. And when he came to Peter, Peter said, not so, Lord. I will never allow you to wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you can have nothing to do with me. Then Peter said, and this is so Peter, isn't it? Lord, then not only my feet, but my whole body. And the Lord said, Peter, he, you are already clean through the word which I have spoken to you. He who is cleansed only needs his feet cleansed. You see, we need regular cleansings. We just need times to get those pollutants out of us that we have unintentionally picked up in this world. As believers, we pick up unknown spiritual pathogens. We pick up fears. Do you ever have like, where did I get that fear? I don't remember having that fear before I used to know them all by name. Where did grumpy come in? You know, we pick up these fears. We pick up hostilities. All of a sudden we don't like someone or you know they don't like us. We pick up enemies, wrong priorities, bad habits. We just pick them up without realizing it, unintentionally. And because of this, we need to make regular forays to the house of God for cleansing, refocusing, remembering, renewal, and redirection. Jacob had picked up quite a few spiritual pathogens in the 21 years, and even previously, before his time at Bethel. It was at Bethel where he first encountered God, Genesis chapter 28. It was at Bethel where he first had the promises of God, applied to his life, given to him by God himself. It was at Bethel that Jacob had made a covenant with that with that same God. But since that time, Jacob had married two wives. He had fathered 11 sons, one daughter, and had another child on the way. He had become a wealthy and successful man. And during that time, God had kept his promises to Jacob. He had prospered Jacob wherever he went. He had protected Jacob, and he had even brought Jacob safely back to the land of promise. However, during this journey, this 21 years, Jacob and his family had picked up some unhealthy fears, hostilities, enemies, habits, and idols. God was calling Jacob and his family back to Bethel, and this was a call to cleansing, a call to reprioritize, a call to reprioritize, new priorities, <laughs> Re prioritizing. Never mind, new priorities. We'll just do that. A call to remembering God's promises and faithfulness, a call to renewal of God's promises, and a call to redirection for Jacob and Jacob's son's lives. In Genesis 35, 1, God said, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother, Go back to that place where you first encountered me. First directly, face to face, where you first heard my promises. You first met me. You first knew that I wanted a covenant with you, where you came into covenant with me. Why? Because Jacob had picked up fear. No doubt the experience of leaving Laban was traumatic. Jacob was vulnerable. He had wives and servants and livestock and children. And Laban was angry and aggressive. Laban was not someone you wanted to cross. And Laban had pursued Jacob and caught up with him. And it was only God's intervention, the fear of God that kept Laban from harming Jacob and taking back all that Jacob had acquired, from taking back Jacob's wives and Jacob's livestock and Jacob's children. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the fear doesn't hit you when the event is happening? It hits you afterwards. Any of you ever have that? Where you know the car swerves towards you and you're just like, huh. And you, you avert the danger. But afterwards, you realize how close you came to it. And you're like shaking. Like, hi, I almost died five minutes ago. You know, and you just find yourself shaking. Or, you know, someone yells at you, you know, at the market. This has happened to me. They just start yelling at you. And at the time, you're just like, I'm sorry you're having a problem. God bless you. Have a great day. May you be saved if you want counseling, I know a place. <laughs> and you're fine. And then you get in the car and you're like, I've, I've had that happen so much. When I was in college, there was this um, man, I didn't, we didn't call it stalking them. We didn't know what stalking was, but there was this guy who would just show up every place I was. If I was at the beach, there he was. If I was at church, there he was. If I went to the market, there he was. And he'd be like, hi, Cheryl. And I'd, I was so dense, I was like, gosh, that's weird how that guy has the same schedule as me. (laughs) And he's kind of strange, but, oh, that's interesting. Until he showed up at my college. And I was at UCI, and I came out of a class. And he's there, and he's standing, he's like, hi, Cheryl, thus says the Lord, you will be my wife, really loudly, in front of all these people I had been sharing Jesus with, and telling them, no, being a Christian is not weird at all. (laughs) And there he is. And I'm just like, what in the world are you doing here? And he grabbed my arm. And he said, you're gonna be my wife. And I was saying, let go of my arm. Let go of my arm. And then I had this tall guy. Um, he wasn't a Christian. His name was Jay. I was sharing Jesus with him. And I, had, I worked with him at a shoe store. And he was like, what can I do? What can I do? Now, let me tell you this. Jay was a nice guy. He was probably about six feet tall and 120 pounds. It was not much Jay could do. And this guy was big. And I said to him, "Jake, just go get campus police. I was so calm. Get campus police. Go get campus police. The guy still got my arm. Go get campus police right now. And now there's a crowd around me. You know, they're all like, and he's going, thus says the Lord. And you know, you're just like, this is so humiliating. But he's so strong, I can't get my arm loose. And the next thing I know, here at campus police, and they've got their whistle, and they're running towards me. And, you know, he sees them, and he takes off running. And I got to my car, and I locked the doors, and I said, God, thank you. Thank you for saving me. I get home, and the minute I walk through the back uh, gate of our house and around, and I saw my dog, I fell apart. I started sobbing convulsively. I fell on my knees, I couldn't move. I was going, "Ah, ah." I guess because I felt safe. And there's my dog, like, you'll beat him up, right? And my mom, she's upstairs, she's like, what's that rocket? What are you doing? You know, what's wrong with you? Ah, ah." You know, like the neighbors, we do have neighbors. And I come running in the house and she looks at me and she's like, what's wrong? what happened? And I tell her and she's like, give me a minute. She runs in, she calls my dad. My dad rushes home. There's more to that story, but that's another day. I just want to tell you (laughs) that the fear hit me afterwards, not at the moment that it happened. When he had my arm, I was like, the Lord and campus security will deal with you. And then when I saw my dog it, it was when it hit me so hard. Sometimes that's how fear is, isn't it? And I, until that day, I wasn't afraid of, of men or people that showed up at markets and places that I was. But after that, it was like I was on high alert. I, I found this fear and this sense of vulnerability entered into my life. Now, Jacob has no sooner left the land of promise when he hears his brothers on his way with 400 men. Why would Esau come with 400 men if his intentions were friendly or good? I think his intention was to drive Jacob out of the land, to say no. And he was bringing a show of force. And this word strikes fear into Jacob To make matters worse, Jacob has wrestled all night with a heavenly personage, and his hip is disjointed. He's in tremendous pain. Walking is agony. But we read about his encounter with Esau in Genesis 33. Perhaps Jacob, when God said he would take care of it, perhaps Jacob hoped that Esau would not find him, that God would divinely hide Jacob in his company. Or that Esau would be distracted and turned back, or that Esau would be divinely defeated or weakened as he was. It's like, Lord, why do I have to have the hip out of joint? Don't you think you should have given the disjointed hip to Esau? Isn't that just the way of God's Lord? Why are my enemies so strong? Why do I have to be the weak one? Did Jacob expect a positive reception? Jacob begins to bow before his brother once, twice, three times, four times, five, six, seven. He's apologizing. With every bow, he's apologizing. You see, Jacob had been the one in the wrong. Jacob deserved that type of reception. You know, it's one thing to get together with someone like, oh, we're going to get together. When they're the one who's done you wrong, you could say, you know what? My heart is clean. I forgive you. But you've got the advantage. But what about when you're the one who done somebody wrong? Song. What about when it's you and, and you're the one? You're in the wrong and you need mercy and you don't even know if that person has the ability to give mercy. This is Jacob. He Needs Esau's mercy. He, what he did was absolutely wrong. He deceived his brother. He took his birthright and his blessing, and he did it by deception. What is he going to expect? Then Jacob's wives and children come before, and they bow. And Esau begins to run towards Jacob. Esau is barreling toward him. The hunter is coming at him full speed. And Jacob can't run. His hip is out of joint. This must be probably one of the most frightening moments of Jacob's life. Because he has no idea what Esau is going to do when he meets him. He is coming at him full force. But suddenly, as he gets close, his arms open wide and he embraces his brother, falls on his neck, and weeps. Can you imagine, Jacob? Can you imagine the cortisol in his system? Can you imagine the fight or flight? but he can't do either and he's there and now an embrace and they weep together. Then Jacob has to press Esau into accepting his gift of all the livestock stock. Esau volunteers to accompany Jacob into the land, but Jacob obviously did not want to chance upsetting or offending his brother again. You know, like, good, we got peace now. This is good. How about if we just, well, you know, I'll go a little slow. You go ahead. If someone said, see her later, you go to see her. I'll go to Shechem and we'll see her later. No doubt, the fear came after this encounter. The fear often operates this way. We can be brave and calm, even filled with faith in the moment. Then when it is over, we think, I never, ever want to go through something like that again. And we kind of have a fear of the very thing that God just brought us through. We never want to repeat that. This is when fear grips us and begins to attach itself to our thoughts. Lord, I know you're going to bring me through, but I just don't even want to go through something like this again. But Jacob also picked up hostility and enemies. Not only is Laban hostile to Jacob, but there is a boundary that is set up just right at the base of the mountains of Gilead that say, Jacob, not allowed. No crossing back for Jacob. He is never allowed to pass that barrier again. Jacob also now has hostilities in Shechem. That's where his daughter Dinah had been raped by Shechem who is the son of Hamor, but also a prince, a Hivite prince and the prince of the Hivites. A town is named after this young man. That shows his importance and his authority. Jacob's sons Simeon and Levi, have been outraged at the defilement of their sister. Shechem had assaulted their sister. And we find out in... Genesis 34, 25, that Simeon and Levi deceive the men of Shechem. Tell them that they're willing to negotiate, enter into a covenant. And then they go through and they slay all the men of Shechem while they're in recovery. Jacob is worried about retribution because there are Hivite settlements all over Israel. Perhaps you remember that the Gibeonites, when you come to the book of Joshua, that they're they're Hivites. So there were Hivite clans all over Israel. And Shechem had been where the royalty and the leadership of the Hivites had been. Jacob is right to know that this is a dangerous situation because he is dwelling there as a nomad, as a sojourner. Jacob's family had picked up bad habits, the habits of the Canaanites. Dinah had gone out to meet the daughters of the land. She had gone out to make an acquaintance, to make friendships, alliances, uh, no doubt to see how they dressed, how they looked, how they acted. This was dangerous. She was curious. And when she had been out there among the daughters of the land, she had been seduced and raped. And that was common in the culture of the Hivites. Hamar, who was the father of Shechem, had then negotiated with Jacob to get Dinah as a wife for Shechem. Hamar hoped to have Jacob assimilate into the Hivite culture. He said to the men of Shechem, look, if we cooperate with Jacob and his sons, if we allow ourselves to be circumcised, all their goods, all they own, all their daughters can become our wives. They'll lose their identity. They'll just become one of us and we'll get everything they own. We'll be enriched. In so doing, If Jacob allowed this, he would soon lose the distinction of being Israel. Yet Jacob did not protest. He was seemingly at a loss. Dinah had even been taken into the ungodly Hivite house of Hamar. Dinah was the first of Jacob's children in danger of being assimilated into the Hivite culture. Simeon and Levi were grieved and very angry because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel, a thing which ought not to be done. Verse 37 of chapter 34. But Simeon and Levi acted deceitfully. They feigned an agreement and a willingness to assimilate with the Hivites If the men of Shechem would be circumcised, Shechem and the men of Hamar, uh, sorry, Shechem is so desperate to have Dinah in his harem, not wife, in his harem, that he tells his father, convince the men of this city, let's do whatever it takes. When the men of Shechem were in recovery, Simeon and Levi fell on these men and slaughtered them, taking all the goods that belonged to the citizens. And they took all the women as captives. In other words, Simeon and Levi acted just like a Hivite. Remember, they were angry because Shechem stole Dinah. But what did they do? They went a step further. They slaughtered the men and they took their wives. They took their daughters. They acted like the Hivite men. They hadn't assimilated into Shechem, but they had acted just like the men of Shechem. They had used deceit. They had feigned acceptance. They had acted violently and they had taken the Hivite women as captives. But Jacob's family had also picked up idols along the way. We read in Genesis 35 two that Jacob ordered his family to put away the foreign gods that are among you. And there were foreign gods, so many, that Jacob had to dig a hole by a terebinth tree and bury them. In Jacob's family and among his sons and wives were foreign gods in this little enclave, this, this little hope for the salvation of all the world. This this little company, there are already pollutions and pollutants of idolatry. Rachel has stolen her father's idols. You remember Genesis 31, 19. And perhaps Levi and Simeon had stolen the household gods when they plundered Shechem. Gods were usually made out of silver and gold. They were the treasures. They were what was of most value in a person's house. Or perhaps they had accumulated these foreign gods by other means, just along the way back to Israel. Whatever the case, these were the foreign gods among the sons of Jacob. These gods needed to be removed. These idols represented faith in other powers, in other sources, in other persons, and in gold and silver. These gods were in competition and opposition to the only true God. These gods needed to be brought out into the open. Look at them. Look at what you've been serving. Recognize that you are wrong in doing that. Renounce these gods. Surrender these gods and bury these gods forever. Jacob's family had begun to look like the Canaanites. A visitation to Bethel, to the house of God, was needed. They had to surrender their earrings. Scholars say that the earrings were attached to the worship of the gods, like having an eye watch and an iPod or an eye watch to your iPhone. It was a connection. Your earring signaled the God that you served. It was emblematic. It would have an emblem of that God. The people of Jacob might have wanted these simply because they liked the way they looked on the Hivites or the Canaanites. But somewhere along the way, they had picked up these earrings that made them look like the people who worshipped the gods of the Canaanites. Jacob tells his household that they must purify themselves and change their garments. Here is yet another requirement. Living and journeying among the polytheistic cultures had gotten the camp of Jacob dirty. And the change of clothes, the washing, the new clothes, would signify the change of attitude, the change of lifestyle. No longer looking like the Hivites and the people among them. Not looking like them in habit or form or dressing like them. It signaled purification, expectation, and cleansing at Bethel. There at Bethel, it is time for a thorough cleansing. God protects Jacob and his company by putting the terror of God on the cities that they pass by. Chapter 35, verse five. Jacob plans to build an altar to God. He plans to go to Bethel, and there I'm going to honor the God that met me. I'm gonna honor the God that gave me the promises. I'm gonna honor the God that has been with me and protecting me. I saw a different scenario, but God has intruded. God has intervened. God has protected. And he's gonna build this altar in the sight of his sons and his wives and his servants. No doubt he has rehearsed the story of his own life again and again. Because the last time he was there, he was afraid, he was alone, he was impoverished. He was unsure of where to go. And his future was unknown. He called it the day of his distress. There in the day of his distress at the lowest point of his life, God had met him personally and with his presence and with the promises of God. There at Bethel, he had encountered God, received the promises of God, and entered into a covenant with God. When Jacob comes to Bethel, God is faithful to meet Jacob there. In verses 10 through 11 of chapter 35, God says, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. I am God almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you, I give this land. And Jacob sets up another pile of rocks. This is an altar, but this is not like an altar where sacrifice is offered. This is an altar more akin to an Ebenezer. It's a memorial altar. It's a monument to commemorate his encounter with God, God's faithfulness, God's promises. Jacob does not sacrifice, but he pours out a drink offering and oil on this altar. He's saying this altar itself is sanctified. It didn't cost me a death to get to this altar. It was God who paid the price. Jacob calls this place again, the house of God. Even as God faithfully met Jacob there the first time, God faithfully met Jacob there a second time. When Jacob returned to Bethel, God met with him. God ratified the change of nature or the name of Jacob to Israel. God reiterated the promises and God redirected Israel, Jacob, to dwell in the land that had been given to Abraham, Isaac, and now to Israel. Jacob desperately needed this moment at Bethel. Desperately needed. This is not the end of hard times. This is not like, oh, now everything's going to go so wonderful. He went back to Bethel. Yay. No. Don't don't we want that? Don't we want like, now everything's going to be so good. No more trials. I'm a Christian. I fasted for three days. It's all over. Everything's good. No. No. Think about it. After this time, Deborah, the beloved nurse of Rachel, would die and be mourned. Rachel would die and be buried in Bethlehem. Reuben would defile his father's bed. I mean, there are so many problems up ahead for Jacob. This Bethel is not to alleviate the problems, but they are there to cleanse Jacob, prepare and strengthen him. For all that life will bring, all the opposition, all the doubts, he needs this time at Bethel. Jacob's father, Isaac, would die, and Esau would once again have to meet with his oh, sorry Jacob would once again have to meet with Esau, his brother and work cooperatively to bury their father. Now remember, the schism had been about who gets the blessing, who gets the inheritance of our father. Now they're gonna meet together and bury Isaac. Are those same issues gonna come back? Remember Esau had said, the days of my father's death are, are, is not that far away. And when my father dies, I'll murder, I'll murder my brother Jacob. So now Isaac dies. And Jacob has to work cooperatively with Esau. Yes, there would be challenges ahead, different than the ones he had faced thus far, greater in some ways. And yet not one of these threats, not one of these issues would ever, ever be a threat to the promises of God. Bethel was not an option for Jacob. It was a necessity. Jacob needed realignment. He needed to be reacquainted with his God and redirected and renewed in the presence, promises, and purposes of God. We all need a Bethel, not the place in Northern California. We all need to come to the house of God. Because we, like Jacob, collect pathogens every place we go. We collect fears. We collect hostilities. Do you ever feel feelings just pop up in you and you're like, I didn't know I felt that way. You know, someone says, I'm going to put raisins in the bread. I hate raisins. I didn't know. Wherever you are, Kathy Gilbert, you hated raisins. (laughs) These, these, These feelings just all of a sudden pop up, and we didn't even know we felt that way before. You, you, you say something so strong, and you're like, whoa, I'm scaring myself right now. Where did that come from? We need a Bethel. We need a Bethel. We've collected hostilities, bad feelings that we didn't know we had. We, we've collected enemies. As you go through life, there are going to be people that just don't like you, They just don't like you. Uh, Recently, someone says, I don't like Brian. They said that. And somebody said, why? He goes, I just don't. I hate him. I just don't like him. Great. I'm married to him. I like him. I like him a lot. After 40 years, I super like him. But we collect enemies. We don't mean to. I mean, just something that we do offends somebody. I mean, you can't drive home from this study without making an enemy. I'm just saying. We pick up bad habits and the ways of the culture. We pick up their fears. Coronavirus. (laughs) Don't touch me. Don't shake my hand. Don't hug me. Don't breathe on me. We pick up these fears fears. They fear that way because they don't have a heavenly father who protects them. That We have the guarantee that, that the pestilence will not hit us. And if it does in a dangerous, life-altering way, you're going to go to sleep sneezing and wake up looking at Jesus. Is that really bad? Is that so bad? Is that so terrible? You know, they have to be scared because they're not going to a nice place. If that coronavirus takes them out, it's taking them down. If the coronavirus hits us, it's taking us up. We don't need to take on the bad habits. Don't touch me. Don't breathe on me. Don't. We don't need to pick up those habits. We don't wanna pick up those habits. We don't wanna dress or think or act like people who do not have an eternal hope. We do not wanna act or think or dress like people who do not have the promises of God. We do not wanna dress or think or act like people who do not walk in the presence of God. We walk in the presence of God We walk under the covering and protection of God. We walk with the promises of God. We don't want to act like them. We don't need deceit. We don't need trickery. We don't need to fall on them and kill them. That is not the way of Jesus. We do not fight fire with fire. We fight fire with the love of Jesus Christ. When your enemy offends you, we don't answer in kind. We do unto others what we want done to us. That is how we are to act and behave. But to get back there, to get back there, we need a Bethel. We need to go to the house of God because we do pick up these things. We do start acting like them because you know what? You're like, okay, we're all watering. You know, we're all washing the cart. Okay, I wanna wash my cart too. Oh, we're all buying water and toilet paper at Costco. We have to buy water in Costco. They're piling up. I need to stockpile. We start just doing what they're doing. We pick up their habits. It's it's just happens because we live in this life, and we begin to look to the sources that they look to. We begin to look for our help, our protection, our success, our health, to the same gods that they look to. We need a baffle. I'm not condemning you, I'm not like, shame on you. No, because I do it too. I know you do it, because I do it. I know you do it because you are women, and I'm a woman. I know it, I know my species. I know you. I know how you think, because it's how I think. I know you, we know each other, don't we? Like, I know what you, (laughs) I know. I don't know because the Holy Spirit is telling me. No, I know because I did it. I know because this is my nature. We're all in the girlfriend club together. And we all need the house of God. Not once, not twice, but we need the house of God again and again. And let me say this. For some of you, your place of Bethel is a scripture or a Bible story. It's a place where God really met you. He met you there. And you need to go back to that very place. It's scripture. Because when you were reading it, one time it all just came together and everything became clear. And you said, Lord, I see what you're doing. The promises are mine. It just all became clear. Go back, go back to that scripture, go back to that place where when you read it, you covenanted with God and all the promises were real. Brian, I remember years ago, we were living in Vista. He came to me and he said, Cheryl, I got this scripture from God. I was so excited. Till he read to me, I will make you a new threshing sledge. I'm like, that's not like a happy scripture, happy promise. You know, mine's a little later in Isaiah 41. Funny how the Lord gave us both Isaiah 41. He's at the beginning, the threshing sledge. I'm at the part where God's holding my right hand saying, don't worry that you're married to a threshing sledge. Everything's gonna be all right, I've got your right hand. (laughs) You know, those times that God meets you and says, this is for you, you might not understand it right now, but someday you will. For others, it might be a physical place. Samuel, I love this, had to go back to bed, Samuel 3. It was in bed where he first heard the voice of the Lord saying, Samuel, Samuel. He got up, he ran to Eli. Eli said, No, I'm not calling you. He goes back to bed, Samuel, Samuel. He gets up, he goes to Eli again, I'm not calling you. He goes back, Samuel, Samuel. He goes back to Eli, and Eli then realizes it must be the voice of the Lord. And he says, Samuel, go back to that place. And when you hear that voice, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And so, Samuel goes back to bed, and he hears, Samuel, Samuel. And he says, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And God speaks to him. Samuel had to go back to that place where he first heard the voice of the Lord. You might have to go back to a certain place where you first heard the voice of the Lord. It might be this church where you first heard the voice of the Lord. It might be a camp camp. It might be, um, for me, there's a place at the beach that I go when I'm overwhelmed and I remember the presence and the promises of the Lord. It might be a location, a place that you were desperate, empty when you were there before. It's time to strip down, purify, and go back to that place. Perhaps it was an emotional state that you were at. In Revelation 2, 5, Jesus tells the church of Ephesus, go back to the place when I was your first love, when I was your first waking thought. Go back to that place of passion. Get alone with the Lord and say, Lord, until I'm at that passionate place for you again, you need to go back to that first love passion, that place when Jesus was all you had of any worth. For some, Bethel will be a practice or a discipline, something that you left off. So they're like, you know, when I read my Bible first thing in the morning, or when I used to read my Bible at lunch, or when I used to read my Bible at three o'clock in the afternoon, or when I read my Bible before I went to bed, or, or when I used to go on Wednesday nights to church, or when I used to meet on Sunday mornings, or when I used to, it might be a practice it might be a discipline. When I used to get together with my friends and pray, and now we just get together and eat or talk recipes or talk fashion. But when we used to meet and pray, things happened. It was different then. It might be a practice or discipline. It's time to go back to the house of God. In Psalm 73, Asaph needed to go to the house of God. This is the only psalm written by Asaph. But he said, you know, I was stumbling. I was losing my grounding. Everything seemed distorted. To me, it looked like it didn't, wasn't worth it to serve the Lord. It looked like wicked people had all the advantages. And I was wondering, what am I doing What is life all about? He said, until I went to the house of the Lord. Verse 17, until I went to the sanctuary of God. There at the sanctuary of God, everything was realigned. His perspective was changed. And in verse 23 of Psalm 73, Asaph writes, nevertheless, I am continually with you. It was the presence of the Lord. You hold me by my right hand. It was the protection of the Lord. You will guide me with your counsel. It was the promises of the Lord. And afterward, receive me to glory. It was the purposes of the Lord. He needed The house of Bethel. We all get dirty. Don't you try to tell me you don't got no fears. Don't try to tell me you don't have some hostilities, some jealousies, some little naughtiness, little gossip sneaking back in. Don't try to tell me. I know you. I told you, I know you. We all get dirty what's the remedy what's the remedy go back to bethel go back to bethel get your feet washed just get your feet washed get those pollutants whether they're fears you know anxieties whether they're hostilities whether they're enemies whether they're just other pollutants taking on the ways and the bad habits of this world get washed again at Bethel, isn't it wondrous that we can serve a God that offers free foot washings over and over again, that invites us to arise and go to Bethel to meet with us again and again to be cleansed, not to be condemned, but simply to bury it, change our clothes, use luster cream. And have that fresh cleansing again and again and again. And as often as we get our feet dirty, here at Bethel is the opportunity to shed your fears, remove those hostilities, give the enemies to God, recognize the ungodly habits that have crept into your life and simply take it off, take it off. Surrender the idols that you've been carrying around. Purify yourself and change your garments. Bethel is waiting for each of us. Go ahead and let's stand up for a second. Let's let's do a little Bethel right now. Let's just do a little Bethel. Lord, we're here together. We are your women, Lord, who are called by your name. We thank you that our new identity is in Jesus and not by the name given to us by this world. Lord, we've all gotten a bit dirty. So Lord, I I just want to call out the pollutants that we might be cleansed right here, that this right here, this time, this place right now might become a Bethel for all of us. So as every eye is closed, Maybe you'd say, Cheryl, I've picked up some fears. I want to leave them. I want to leave them here. If that's you, will you just raise your hand, just signify? Now, I want to get rid of these fears right now. Okay, let's leave them. Let's shed the fears. Let's shed the fears. Okay, others of you, there's hostility. You know, maybe there's like, I hate this person. I dislike this. I hate that. You're complaining someplace or other. If that's you, nobody sees, every eye is closed, just raise your hand. In raising your hand, you're just signifying that you just don't want it, that you're giving it to the Lord. It's like a surrender, take it, take it away from me. Take this cockroach out of my house. That's what we're doing. Get the cockroaches out of the kingdom of God of your heart. Okay, we're not done. Because we've picked up hostilities, but some of us have picked up bad habits there are bad habits uh, maybe you feel like yourself uh, slipping into a little bit of gossip slipping into like just a little bit of you know grumbling if that's you and you want it gone just raise your hand we're surrendering we're getting rid of cockroaches just think of it as a really big extermination we just want it gone some of you have been trusting idols of this world you've been trusting maybe the hand sanitizer no offense You've been trusting the hoarding of water, toilet paper. You've been trusting in the wrong things, maybe even the media to tell you the direction. If, if that's you, will you just raise your hand because you don't want that? You just don't want that. We're gonna surrender the idols. Lord, we thank you that now that we've surrendered the idols, Lord, we can purify our garments We can leave the garments of heaviness and we can be dressed in the garments of praise. And God, we pray for this great exchange, this great changing right now here at this place in the house of God, a realignment of our perspective. Lord, that you might come in and be our peace, that we might be governed by the almighty God, that we might be preserved by the almighty God, that we might live in the active realization of the presence of God, that we might draw on the promises of God and we might persevere into the purpose of our God. And we ask this because you are able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for washing our feet yet again here at the house of Bethel. In Jesus' name, amen.